Hello, everyone, and welcome back for episode 17 of Take It or Leave It, where we discuss the hottest topics in the world of workplace leaves, absence management, and accommodation. I'm Meg Toth, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, friend, and colleague, Josh Seidman. We're excited to be back after a short month-long break for our first episode of 2023. I can't believe it's already mid-February. How's your new year been so far, Josh? Oh, hey, Meg, and, and hi to our listeners. So happy to be back with you. It's been a busy year, that, that is for sure. Both of my kids' birthdays are in the first month and a half of the year. So we've transitioned straight from holiday mode into birthday celebration mode. So it feels like there's been a constant stream of parties and gifts. There was a family trip in the middle that we took that went really well. But we've been trying to keep everyone healthy enough so they can enjoy all the fun. And we definitely had fun, but some limited success in the keeping everyone healthy uh, department. How are you doing? How's your year been so far? Good. I I think we're in the same camp as you in terms of trying to keep everyone healthy, marginally limited success. Um, And I'll spare everyone the details, but we even had a life infestation in in our household in the month of January Uh, with small kids, I guess. It's sort of a rite of passage, but it was was a lot. Um, And in addition to that, we had a lot of other things going on, too, lots of travel for work and for fun. I'm busy with a lot of client employment policy updates for 2023. And I agree. Well, it wasn't my kids' birthdays. It definitely is birthday party season. I've been to way more trampoline parks in the last month than I care to share. Uh, But it's all off to a good start. And the month of February is proving to be just as busy with the Super Bowl and Valentine's Day. And, of course, the FMLA's 30th birthday, which I'm sure many of our listeners were throwing parties for, of course. Yeah, yes. Mid-February has been so busy. Super Bowl, Valentine's Day, you know, the, the Grammys, Daytona 500, uh, President's Day and the break from school that comes with it. I mean, you name it. The FMLA, I- I'm with you. I'm, I'm sure so many of our listeners and their HR and benefits and legal teams put aside their Super Bowl boxes and toss their Valentine's Day chocolates to the side and just had some cake and champagne to celebrate the FMLA this month, right? <laughs> That said, even if the FMLA's 30th birthday is going to be overlooked by most, maybe except for us employment lawyers and HR professionals, it is really a big deal because it presents a great opportunity to discuss all the amazing things that have happened, what employers are still dealing with 30 years later with this law. Exactly. And I mean, it's crazy that it's 30 years later, but I'm especially excited because it's also given us the opportunity to have our amazing guest speaker join us for an episode. Our partner, FMLA expert extraordinaire and friend and one of my personal mentors, Ellen McLaughlin. Ellen is engaged in a broad-based employment law practice with particular emphasis on federal and state court and administrative agency employment litigation and his significant experience and expertise on the FMLA. In October of 2019, Ellen testified before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Labor and Education on H.R. 2694, which is the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act that we all know passed recently. In 2011, she was one of the two management attorneys in the country invited by the EEOC to testify at a public hearing on the issue of leave as a reasonable accommodation. Ellen co-authored comments to the EEOC's proposed regulations to Americans with Disabilities Act, as well as the ADA Amendments Act. She also authored comments to DOL's proposed regulations for the FMLA on behalf of national employer coalitions in 2008 and most recently in 2019. 
authored comments to DOL's proposed changes to its FMLA form. She speaks on a national basis on leave and accommodation issues and is widely recognized for her subject matter proficiencies related to the ADA and the FMLA. Ellen is recognized by her peers and clients as an accomplished practitioner. She is a fellow in the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers, is recognized by both Chambers USA and Legal 500, Legally Limited, has been named to Best Lawyers in America, has twice been recognized as the Best Employment Lawyer in Chicago, is recognized as one of the top 50 women lawyers in Illinois, and has been named to a BTI Consulting Client Services All-Star. Finally, and what one of the things Ellen is most proud of is in 2022, she was named the 2022 Coalition of Women's Initiatives in Laws Inspiration Award, given to a female attorney who serves as an inspiration to other female attorneys. And the list just goes on and on and on. And I'm exhausted after reading through all of Ellen's credentials and the amazing awards she's been given. But I can personally speak both for her expertise as a practitioner and as the inspirational leader and mentor she has been. So excited to welcome you, Ellen. um, And thanks for joining us today. Meg, thank you for that kind introduction. I'm a bit bit concerned that it might have put some of our listeners to sleep. I'm like, you can cut that bio a little. Uh, but Josh and Meg, it's great to be here today and to join you to celebrate the FMLA's 30th birthday, which, P.S., was actually on February 5th of this month, which was the date that President Clinton signed the bill into law. I don't think, and certainly I never thought, that 30 years later, we would still be grappling with compliance. Everybody thought this was going to be a pretty easy law to comply with. We had a pretty basic statute. We had regs uh, that now have been twice or once revised uh, uh, after the original ones that are pretty straightforward, or so we thought. But here we are 30 years later, still talking about it still getting litigation over it, and still getting very uh, much day-to-day questions about it. So happy birthday, a bit belated FMLA. Yes, Ellen, that is <laughs> wonderful. Thank you for joining us and being here today. We're so excited, as Meg said, to be with you. So honored that you're our guest for this really important episode, first one of the year and a big birthday celebration for the FMLA. So let, let's jump right in. Uh, looking back 30 years and you know having the benefit of seeing how this law has evolved through guidance and opinion letters, you know, where there have been plenty of both. You know, what employee and employer needs has the FMLA filled? You know, in other words, what have been some of the biggest benefits for employers and employees based on this law? Sure. Let me start with the biggest benefits for employees, because I do think we all lose sight of that. And sometimes when I'm doing manager training and they're concerned about their staffing in a department, I take it back and say, okay, but if you needed leave because your mother was dying in the hospital, wouldn't you want the ability to take that time off? And suddenly a light bulb goes off and they're like, oh, there is the other side of the coin, right? So I think the biggest benefit for employees is life happens. And unfortunately, sometimes there are those life events where an employee needs time off because they have a serious health condition. They need time off to care for a family member who has a serious health condition. Although, Meg, I do not think that this covers lice infestation, just to let you know. 
So sorry. Uh, no FMLA uh, for covering that. And for happier events, right? So to bond with your newborn child, people need that time off. Placement for adoption, for foster care. You have a family member who is going into the military and you need to take time off. They're going overseas. You need to make childcare arrangements. You need to make financial arrangements. Or on the negative side, you have a military family member who has been injured and you need to take care of them. So for all of those reasons, FMLA and the intent behind it was to be a really good thing for employees to take time off for these life events and to provide, now it's 12 weeks, right, in a 12-month period, unpaid leave. And we're going to get to paid versus unpaid a little bit later uh, in the program, but 12 weeks of unpaid leave in a 12-month period with certain eligibility requirements and all of that. But the biggest thing is the job protection, right? So you can't be fired for taking your FMLA leave and you get an extension of your health care benefits. So we all want a healthy workforce. We all want a workforce that is free from anxiety. They're not concerned they're going to lose their job if they need to take care of a family member. So I think for employees, that has clearly been the biggest benefit. And I think still is today. Yeah, great points. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a really good strategic move in terms of the training. I think I might I might use that sometime too. <laughs> On the other hand, what has big, you know, been one of the biggest issues or problems that the FMLA has caused for employers trying to manage their workforce and operating a business while still trying to comply with the law? So this really hasn't changed since day one. Taking continuous leave for uh, an employer and in managing the employee who takes continuous leave is pretty much easy peasy. You know the date that the leave is going to start generally. You know the date the leave is going to end. Maybe there'll be an extension, but an employer and the managers can figure out staffing because they know how long the person is going to be gone. So those are easy. However, right from day one, uh, an employee is allowed to take intermittent leave for leave for their own serious health condition, for the military leave reasons, and to care for a family member. It does not apply to bonding leave. That's only with the employer's approval. But you think about it. So they can take a day here, a day there of intermittent leave. They can take an hour here, an hour there, half day here, uh, a half day there. And what is the issue here is that you cannot require a doctor's note from that employee verifying that the reason they took that previously approved intermittent day off was legit, right? So you can't require that doctor's note to say, yes, this employee was off because their migraine headache flared up. So unfortunately, we do have some individuals who will abuse that and take intermittent days off because they don't have to prove it. I hate to feel like that uh, that lawyer that is looking at things from the glass half empty position, but you know, um, my guess is that some of our listeners can relate to that, and so it wreaks havoc basically on staffing and being unexpectedly short staffed. For an employer, those unpredictable absences are absolutely the worst and very very difficult to deal with, and there is little. I'm going to give some tips later, but little 
you can do about it uh, from an abuse perspective. This hasn't changed because that was written into the statute. It's in both sets of regs that had come out. And that, to me, is the number one problem with the FMLA that has been there since day one. I often joke that if I could figure this out and come up with this magic formula for intermittent leave abuse, I wouldn't be on your program because I would be a multimillionaire and I would be off on some remote island that I would own with my feet up and a pina colada in my hands. So. <laughs> All right. I would I would love to join you there, Ellen. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> um, Same. <laughs> so to, to piggyback on that that last question and your your response, Ellen, what would you say as far as you know biggest FMLA related issues or problems? You know, the number one or two that you personally counsel employers on, and sort of how those topics and issues have changed over the the last you know thirty years. Sure. So to piggyback on my last answer, really, I would guess, you know, every other advice and counsel uh, for our employers uh, and our clients is the FMLA abuse for intermittent leave. A couple of tips, and again, no magic bullet, have clear policies, right, that uh, it is very clear what an employee has to do in order to notify the employer of the need for leave both in terms of following their regular attendance policies, but also how do they notify the employer of that day off for intermittent leave? How many days after the time they take the absence? What kind of call-in will you accept? Will it be a text, right? So back in the day, probably 30 years ago, I didn't look this up, but there probably weren't texts, right? But now employees like to do everything by text. Is that acceptable for notice or isn't it? So you should look to see if your policies are very clear to employees about how they notify employers of the need for FMLA leave. The other thing that we continue to tell employers is as tedious as it is, Make sure that you are appropriately managing the medical certification process and the recertification process. You're actually looking at the med certs that come in to see if they're complete, to see if they're vague, to see if you need to clarify something, and that you're holding employees' feet to the fire in terms of recertifying if their occurrences go above and beyond what they were previously certified for in terms of number of absences or duration. And making sure that I'll just call it their overall time off buckets are coming down. So, you know, of course, you get 12 weeks of unpaid leave for FMLA, but you can, under the FMLA, make individuals use their accrued paid time off. You never want to be left in a situation where you've got somebody taking 12 weeks of FMLA and then they get whatever buckets they have of accrued paid leave on top of that because that too wreaks havoc. You know, employers do need individuals to be at work doing their jobs. So that hasn't changed. I think the one thing that has changed is employers are now focusing much more on manager training. So before the focus was on, okay, HR needs to know how to implement, to advise on the FMLA. 
And, you know, many employers today also use a third-party administrator, especially if they're a larger employer. So obviously the TPA needs to know what they're doing. But if you think about it, the first line of defense typically for employment practices is the manager or the supervisor. So they need to know what they're doing. And I think employers, and I really encourage this, have spent a lot more time doing manager training on FMLA. I think it's very counterintuitive for managers. They think it's like the ADA, where at a certain point, if people have too many absences, they can say, hey, I can't take this anymore. I need to get my production out. This is an undue hardship for me, like they use under the ADA. And they don't understand that the FMLA is an absolute right statute. Like it or not, manager, the individual, if they qualify and, and it's an FMLA reason, they get that time off, no matter how difficult it is for that manager. And they need to be trained to understand that. So many cases that we get are defeated uh, when we file for summary judgment because of a manager remark Uh, That could have been avoided if they had some training. So some of my favorite remarks are, can't Susan have one of her siblings care for her mom? Well, no, they get to take the time off to care for the mom, even if there's a sibling available. Stephen has taken all this time off and it's really affected our department. And they're not happy at all with Stephen. Or the manager calls the employee at home and says, so, hey, Like, I really need you back at work. Can't you shorten your FMLA? And then when the employee says no, they write something negative in their performance review. That is the quickest way. I call that uh, loose lips sink the summary judgment ship because that's exactly what happens, right? Otherwise, really, the employer did what they were supposed to, but you've got this stray remark. So I would say an emphasis on manager training over the course of years here has become more and more important because it is confusing, right? Here we are, a bunch of lawyers talking about FMLA. Managers are supposed to manage, get production out, whatever it is the industry is requiring, and we need to help them understand the FMLA. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. It's it's incredible how, you know, many HR professionals sort of lose sight that, that you know, this topic can be confusing for managers because we've been dealing with it as, a, you know, employment lawyers and HR professionals for so long that I think it's important to remember that managers can, you know, get confused by the complicated nature of the law. You mentioned summary judgment. So that sort of brings us to our next question here from a litigation standpoint. What is the biggest issue that you have seen litigated under the FMLA, and has that changed over the years? Yeah, so, I mean, if you look at the DOL statistics, still, because in some respects, litigation patterns a bit the charges that get filed with the uh, Department of Labor. You know, it still is, I was terminated, and I shouldn't have been, right? Uh, You counted absences as uh, regular occurrences or instances in really They were FMLA-protected days, you know, which gets us back to making sure that you are very precise in the counting of those job-protected days. So we see a lot of that, and that's really still an emphasis. But what we've seen recently, and the cases, to be honest, are a good read always because they involve social media. So if you think about it, 30 years ago, 
social media wasn't really a thing. Uh, and that's evolved over the course of years. And of course, now it is a thing, right? You think about it. We have Facebook. We have Instagram. We have Twitter. We have Snapchat. We have TikTok. And I will confess that I'm an Instagram person, as Meg knows. Uh, and I, I like to post occasionally or sometimes too often, probably. But so do employees. So here's what's happening. We have these cases, which I bet everybody who's listening can relate to, because what happens is you have an employee who has been certified for leave. Sometimes they ask for vacation and it's denied. So the employee's workaround is to then say, well, so, hey, I need FMLA leave. My migraines have flared up. My back is hurting today. And then the next thing you know they post on Facebook or Instagram about the great time they're having at Disney World or in the Bahamas. Now, the employer is, and hopefully not, like, you know, surfing their Facebook or Instagram accounts, but their coworkers are. It's actually more coworkers than supervisors. The coworker is darn mad because they're picking up the slack for that coworker who really isn't needing FMLA leave, just wanted a few vacation days. They go in to HR's office and say, so, hey, have you seen that Joe is really uh, on the roller coaster at Disney World or on the beach sipping a mudslide, my personal drink favorite for those types of vacations, and not really needing time off for their migraine bad back, whatever. We've seen more and more cases like that. And if you would ever just read those, the facts are pretty hilarious because people do all kinds of crazy things and post about it. So we've seen lots of cases with use of social media catching those who really are engaging in fraudulent use of leave. But a word to the wise. So employers need jerk reaction is to terminate somebody. I totally get it. It just really sticks in their craw that somebody should be at work uh, and use, is using FMLA for the wrong reasons. But what they really need to do is an investigation like they would any other workplace misconduct and make sure that they interview the employee who they believe is engaging in FMLA uh, fraud. Because you just never know, right? You never know what that employee might say that would justify the fact that they took some time off and did some other things. I think the most interesting thing with these cases has been some of the court decisions, which have said, especially in the mental health context, well, listen, the fact that somebody who is suffering from depression, and that's the reason they're out, oftentimes these are continuous leave situations, and they go to the Bahamas and relax with some family members, that's actually helping them get better. That is not fraud. It's not inconsistent with the reason that they're taking leave. And I don't have the doctor saying, I don't have a problem with that. That's something very tough for the employer to swallow. I get that. But the doctors are supporting the employee and the courts are ruling in those types of cases for the employee. 
saying they had every reason to go off on vacation and that the use of FMLA is not, here are the buzzwords, is not geographically limited. But I think the knee jerk is to fire. So I always tell employers, please, please, please take a deep breath and do that investigation, wrap in that healthcare provider, and then make your decision. So I would say those cases, there's more and more of them, and that's something that just didn't exist uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Wow, that, that, that's such great information, Ellen. You know, absolutely helpful and, and you know, bringing it to the modern day and the impact of social media and how the nuances still kind of persist on, on social media platforms. It's really fascinating. Um, also, also, don't be surprised if later today you get an Instagram uh, friend request from me because I'm, I'm oh, okay. <laughs> um, I only post provider. <laughs> well, yeah, I only post travel or like interesting events in my life, so I don't, I don't tell tell him, That's May. Crazy. I don't go crazy. That, that, Every that, once no, in a while, restaurant pictures. I, I, I have to do that, but just, not too many. You got it. The only thing I'll say, Josh, is you, it'll just make your life seem a little bit more boring than you realize when you follow Ellen because she's always <laughs> doing something fun. <laughs> oh, I live vicariously through someone, so I, that works for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Ellen, what, one thing that I think is, is sort of underlying a lot of the, the federal FMLA you know, conversation that we've been having so far is this concept of federal aid leave. Right. And, you know, that 30 years after the unpaid FMLA has been enacted, we're still without a federal paid leave mandate. So if if a federal paid leave law is enacted, how, if at all, do you think that would impact the FMLA? You know, do you think it would be a good thing in your opinion? And what challenges do you think that might pose for employers if that day does come? So. If we were able to get to the place where we had a federal paid family leave law, and that's the only leave law that employers had to worry about, well, that would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? Uh, It would make compliance so much easier. But I'm a total skeptic on this point, uh, and I do fear that the horses left the barn with respect to states and municipalities even getting in the fray of wanting to have their own read on these uh, laws and the need to expand a family member beyond spouse, parent, and child to brother and sister uh, or the number of weeks of leave or how it's going to be paid. And I just don't know if we would ever get to the point where we could have one universal law and be done with all the rest. I just think that, you know, right now, of course, uh, the FMLA is the floor for uh, leaves and benefits, not the ceiling. And if that continues, I'm just still a skeptic as to we're ever going to get to the paid federal leave law that would completely do away with the state laws uh, that keep coming online. It would be great. But we'll see. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Ellen. I think I'm, I'm skeptical on that full-blown preemption point as well. But you, you mentioned a, an interesting follow-up, quick question there, which is, you know, the FMLA and, and its legacy thirty years later. 
you know, you mentioned all these states and even some localities popping up and getting their hands dirty and wanting their own twist on a, a leave of absence paid leave law. Are, are you surprised at all that uh, that that federal paid leave, you know, hasn't really been passed in, in the last three decades? Actually, I'm not surprised at all because it costs a lot of money, right, for employers if they have to pay to have somebody out. It is one thing to grant the time off. That is burdensome as well in terms of staffing and getting the work done, uh, especially when somebody is taking the intermittent absences, but paying uh, for their time off while it would be, like, I think we all agree, it would be a great thing, right? But the reality is uh, that it would be burdensome financially on many, many employers, frankly, from top to bottom, especially for the smaller employer. So I am, again, a skeptic that it's uh, ever going to pass. You know, it's been raised again and again and again in Republican administrations, in Democratic administrations, and it just never comes to pass. So I'm not surprised uh, that we're 30 years later, still it's unpaid leave at the federal level. Yeah, I I agree with that, too. Um, Keeping on this FMLA legacy topic and, you know, the activity at the state and local level with respect to to leave laws, do you think that certain elements of the FMLA, like employer coverage and eligibility, the amount of leave, um, do you think that has at all helped or maybe encouraged um, these state patchworks, especially the recent paid leave push? I think that's right, Meg, because as I said earlier, you know, the FMLA structure and the the benefits in terms of time off and job protection are a floor, uh, not a ceiling. So I guess I am not surprised that certain states or municipalities have said, well, we think that more employers should have to provide some type of family leave. Because right now it's 50 employees, right? What about the smaller employer? They should be swept in. Or we do think that, uh, for example, domestic partners uh, under FMLA uh, are not considered an eligible family member. Certain states like California have said, well, domestic partners should be included as an eligible family member. And maybe the number of hours uh, that you have to put in before you're eligible, which is, you know, 1250 over the previous 12-month period, maybe that should be less. And so I think what states and municipalities have done is looked at the structure and said, well, we want to be more generous, right? And so certainly the FMLA's substantive limits probably have encouraged Uh, certain states or municipalities to say we want to do more and we're going to require that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree on that, too. So that brings us to the end of our questions. This was so much fun. And thank you so much for joining us today, Ellen. Uh, Well, the FMLA has been around for a while now, 30 years to be exact. It was sure helpful to revisit and discuss many of the complex and complicated issues employers have been dealing with and will continue to deal with. And I guess it's interesting to see or we'll be interested to see where we are in 30 years from now with the FMLA. Maybe a paid leave law in the future (laughs) or maybe not. Or maybe not. So thank you so much for having me. It's been lots of fun. 
celebrating the FMLA 30 years later, and especially with the two of you. Thank you so much, Alan. It was great speaking with you today. Yeah. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in for this episode of Take It or Leave It. We will see you next time.